Welcome to the 2018 Distinguished Lecture in Astronomy. This is an annual public lecture sponsored by the Department of Astronomy at UC Berkeley. As the chair of this department, I have the honor to introduce our uh, distinguished speaker this year, Professor Bob Kirshner. Bob received his undergraduate degree at Harvard and a PhD in astronomy at Caltech. He was a postdoctoral fellow at the Kitt Peak National Observatory and a faculty member at the University of Michigan before joining the Harvard Astronomy faculty in 1986. Bob was the president of the American Astronomical Society from 2004 to 2006. And in 2015, Bob moved to our coast to become the chief program officer for science of the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, overseeing the distributions of more than $100 million per year for the research and technology that enable fundamental scientific discoveries. Bob has been honored by many, many awards. To name just a few recent ones, the 2014 Watson Award, the medal from the National Academy of Sciences, awarded every two years for outstanding uh, contributions to the science of astronomy. The 2014 Breakthrough Prize in Fundamental Physics given to the Hi-Z Supernova Search Team. And the 2015 Wolf Prize in Physics, which Bob shared with Bjorken. It is well known to this, this audience that the 2011 Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded to Saul Perlmutter. I don't know if he's here. Um, I'll show a picture. Good, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of the Supernova Cosmology Project, and Adam Rees and Brian Schmidt of the Hi-Z Supernova Search Team for the discovery of the accelerating expansion of the universe through observations of distant supernovae. Bob and our own Alex Filipenko here were part of the Hi-Z Supernova team. And Adam Rees and Brian Schmidt were Bob's PhD students at Harvard University. And Adam Rees was a Miller postdoctoral fellow here at Cal when the accelerating universe result was announced in, a, in 1998, 20 years ago. So I thought to set the stage for Bob's talk about this remarkable discovery in 1998, it, it would be useful to sort of bring everyone back to the early 90s, just briefly. I happened to be a PhD student in theoretical cosmology at MIT at that time. And being a student of Alan Guth, who proposed the inflationary theory, I was taught at an early stage that the cosmic doomsday would have occurred long ago unless the universe as a whole is flat with zero curvature, and if the density parameter of the universe, this so-called omega parameter, has the value of exactly one. Okay, so what made life interesting back then was down the hall from these MIT theorists were observers like Paul Schechter and John Tonry who actually knew something about real data. And they would take every opportunity they could find to remind us that real data simply didn't add up 
to omega being one. They said, no, 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 the universe is open with a low omega value of 0.2 or 0.3. I didn't witness blatant hostility between these two groups of faculty members at MIT, but the tension in their cosmic views, um, contrasting cosmic views was palpable. And as a student, I found it confusing, yet stimulating. <laughs> of course, within a few years, Bob, Alex, Saul, and others on these two teams showed that everyone was half right and half wrong. The theorists were right in that the total omega budget of the universe is probably one. But they were wrong to assume that all of it is in the form of attractive dark matter, which would make the universe decelerate. The observers, on the other hand, were right about omega in matter being low, you know, 0.3-ish, but they missed 70% of the energy budget of the universe, which we now believe to be in the form of the repulsive dark energy. In fact, the concept of dark energy was so repulsive <laughs> that when I wrote my 1995 paper based on my PhD work with Ed Birchinger, in which we spelled out how to calculate the anisotropies in the cosmic microwave background, in that paper, we did not even bother to include the dark energy terms in our equations at first. And it was the, in the last revision when we half-heartedly added all these lambda terms into our equations, just for the sake of being complete, this was 1993 to five. I'm so glad we did that. <laughs> so one last point I'd like to just to highlight is how much of the action uh, leading to this extraordinary discovery occurred here at Berkeley, um, in Campbell Hall, right across, and right up at LBL, the Lawrence Le uh, Berkeley Lab. So I will just read one email okay, taken from Bob's uh, eloquent, popular book, The Extravagant Universe. And this is an excerpt from a long email on January 12th, 1998, at 6.36 p.m. from Adam Rees, then a Miller Fellow in Campbell Hall, to the Hi-Z team. He said, the results are very surprising, shocking even. I have avoided telling anyone about them for a few reasons. I wanted to do some cross-checks, and I wanted to get a ways into writing the results up before Saul et al. got wind of it. <laughs> you see, I feel like the tortoise racing the hare. Every day, I see the LBL folks running around, but I think if I keep quiet, I can sneak up. Shh. The data require a non-zero cosmological constant. Approach these results not with your heart or head, but with your eyes. We are observers after all. So I'll now let Bob tell us the actual story. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Great. That was great. I just wish you had uh, left me something to say. I know. Uh, after that wonderful introduction, I can barely wait to hear myself talk. It'll be great. 
So I'm going to talk about uh, this story of uh, finding that we live in an accelerating universe. And I thought I would also say a little bit about uh, the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, since that's kind of an interesting thing and it's a California thing. So uh, just to say, uh, I still have an appointment uh, at Harvard. I am the Clues Research Professor of Science. That means they don't pay me. Uh, <laughs> they don't expect me to teach. Uh, and they collect overhead on my research grants. Uh, from the point of view of a university administrator, wouldn't you say that's pretty close to perfect? Now that I've moved, now that I've moved out of my office and don't need a parking space, I'm really a model citizen of the university community. <laughs> One thing I did when I came to the Moore Foundation is I asked if they would please give me 20% of my time to uh, do my scientific work. And they said, oh, sure, 20% of your time, no problem. So then I thought, well, you know, suppose you have 20% of your time. How exactly would you do that? Would you say, take a couple of months off every summer? Well. That sounds good, but it's hard to do. Uh, well, all right, maybe you would take a day off every week. That would be doable. Uh, or you could do as I currently do, which is take 12 seconds out of each minute uh, <laughs> to try to think about astronomical stuff while all other kinds of things are buzzing around me. All right, well, the agenda for today is to tell you about uh, what the world's made of and a good place to start uh, is with Galileo. You can't go wrong with Galileo. You got Galileo, you got Einstein, oh, it's gonna be good. Uh, so here's Galileo out in front of the palace in uh, Venice, and he's showing the citizens how to use that telescope. Galileo, of course, aspired uh, to discovery. And as he said, all truths are easy to understand once they are discovered. The point is to discover them. And so I want to talk about a kind of science of discovery, or discovery science anyway, uh, that uh, from Galileo and a little bit uh, that we were involved with. And I think from uh, Galileo's early work with the telescope, there are many things that he did. He saw the moons of Jupiter, and he saw that the Milky Way is made of stars. But one thing that he did that was very convincing is that he made it seem as if the moon seen through a telescope anyway, is a real place. That is, it's not made of something different from the stuff of the Earth, uh, as the Greeks kind of modeled. You know, they had air, earth, fire, and water. Wait a minute, shown here. Now a musical group. Uh, air, earth, fire, and water, uh, plus a fifth essence, the quintessence, which was the stuff of the heavens. But from the observations that uh, Galileo had, you could see that there were mountains on the moon and craters on the moon, and it looked like a real place. So in a way, what I'm gonna talk about tonight is finding out what the current story is for the big picture of, of what the world is made of. Okay, well, astronomy has a very good way to tell about the nature of glowing objects. We can tell from looking at the light from a glowing object how hot it is, that's very useful. And we can also tell uh, from taking the light and breaking it up into a spectrum uh, what it's made of. So 
You all know that you can take the light from a light bulb or from the sun and you can use a chunk of glass in the right way to make a rainbow. And it's an astronomer's job, it's a scientist's job, to take something beautiful like a rainbow and turn it into a graph. And so <laughs> here I show you a kind of spectrum of the sun or some star. And what you can see is that it's a rainbow. But in fact, if you, if you uh, image it through a spectrograph, there are these wavelengths or colors where the light is all missing. There are lines in the spectrum this way we talk about it. Or if you look up at that graph up there, you can see that there are dips at certain places where the atoms in the atmosphere of the star absorb the light. And the wavelengths, or colors, at which the atoms absorb the light are exactly the same in stars as they are uh, on the Earth. So you can identify the chemicals that are present in the sun. Now, it turns out it was a little trickier than that. Showing that it was mostly made of hydrogen uh, uh, took, took more than just looking at the spectrum. But we do know that the chemical elements that make up the Earth are present in the sun, they're present in other stars, and we have some idea of how the explosions of stars uh, make those elements. Okay, so people knew that. They'd gotten past this idea that it was all fifth essence, and they knew it was made of elements that are in the periodic table. Uh, one thing that people didn't have a very good grip on in the early 20th century was the layout of the universe. That is, where is the stuff? And uh, in 1915, which is a date that corresponds more or less to when this story begins, uh, people thought that the Milky Way galaxy, the thing, the, the band of light that goes across the northern sky in the summer, which Galileo had looked at and noticed was made up of individual stars, is a system of stars, a band of stars, that's really a, a, a something like this. This is a view from inside our galaxy, the center of the galaxy is that bulgy thing there. And the uh, dark material is dust uh, that is in the galaxy that's blocking out the light from some of the stars. But there's no place on Earth where you can go to see this. This is a picture put together from images from the southern hemisphere, where you can see some things that are, you can't see here, and from the uh, you can't see from uh, Berkeley, and the northern hemisphere, which has things that you can't see when you're uh, in Chile. And it turns out, interestingly enough, the most important things for this story anyway, is not the big band of light across the middle, uh, but this little thing over here, which was a nebula, a, a fuzzy thing, uh, uh, that um, is in the direction of the constellation uh, Cassiope Andromeda, one of those, Andromeda. Uh, and uh, which turned out to be kind of the key to understanding uh, how our universe is organized. So how did that work? Well, uh, this demure person, uh, Henrietta Leavitt, was working at the Harvard Observatory. She was being paid 25 cents an hour, which was middle, middling wages at that time. The uh, director of the observatory got paid $2 an hour, so that's eight times as much. I'm thinking about it, graduate student, eight times as much, eh, not so different. Okay, anyway, uh, and Henrietta Leavitt was looking at variable stars. The great technological breakthrough, which I'll talk about in a minute. You shouldn't say break when you talk about glass, though, should you? Uh, well, anyway, the great technological change 
at that time was to take images on photographic plates. And I'll show you one in a second. Uh, glass plates with a silver halide emulsion, and by chemistry, the light would uh, allow you uh, to record the images, as you know. We, people used to have experience with film and cameras and stuff, but they, you know that is going away very rapidly. Anyway, she noticed that there were certain kinds of stars that were all at the same distance, because they were in a cloud of stars, large Magellanic cloud and a small Magellanic cloud. And she noticed that they were all at the same distance, so the ones that looked brighter were really brighter. And she noticed that they varied in a way uh, that was very systematic. The ones that were really bright varied slowly, like a big bell has a sort of slow vibration. And the ones that were um, uh, less bright uh, had quicker, quicker vibrations. Now the point about that is that it shows you there's something you can measure, that is the period of the vibration, that doesn't depend on the distance, and it will tell you whether the object you're looking at is intrinsically bright or intrinsically dim. And that allows you to figure out how far away that object is. So here's the director of the observatory on his $2 an hour salary. He's quite a nice suit. Carlo uh, Shapley. Uh, and he was interested in this question of the layout of the Milky Way and used variable stars like these and other types to try to map it out. So uh, here is a kind of map. This is not a picture of our Milky Way galaxy, again, because you can't get out of it. It's too big. Uh, but uh, what it shows is a typical uh, galaxy. And the dimensions were what uh, Shapley was able to work out. So astronomers talk about distances in a kind of funny way. We talk about time. Um, because all the information that we get is coming to us at the speed of light. All the light that we get is coming to us at the speed of light. And the speed of light, as everybody knows who's ever been in a science quiz, is a foot. That's a unit of distance used in the United States and in Myanmar. Uh, a foot <laughs> in a nanosecond, so in a billionth of a second. So astronomers talk about the distance to something as um, uh, in, it, in the length of time it would take light uh, to get here. So for example, in this room I'm looking at the front row. I don't see you the way you are. I see you the way you were 14 nanoseconds ago. Curiously, the people in the back look younger. <laughs> That's because I see them the way they were 40 nanoseconds ago. OK, just a joke in the room, but not a joke in the universe. The light takes time to get here. We don't see everything simultaneously. We see nearby stuff more or less now, and distant stuff the way it was in the past. So that means a telescope is a kind of time machine that lets us see into the past, or see the light that comes from the past, and see what the universe was doing back then. When I describe this story of cosmic expansion, we'll compare how the universe was expanding back then with how it's expanding now by looking at things that are very distant or nearby. So uh, there was a pretty good job of mapping out the size of the galaxy. Shapley um, uh, thought it was something like 100,000 light years. So I've been talking about nanoseconds. In a year, you know, light travels a certain distance. 
And it turns out when you go outside, the bright stars that you see are some light years away or maybe 100 light years away. And that means the light left that star 100 years ago uh, or, or more. It could be, you know, like when Democrats controlled the Congress and something. I don't know. Anyway, uh, the light, light left some length of time ago when <laughs> the universe was quite different and, uh, <laughs> and is arriving here. Uh, tonight, the distance across this uh, galaxy is about 100,000 of those light years. So that gives you the scale. All right. And uh, we're not in the center. Uh, we're, Berkeley is uh, located out here, kind of across the bay. Uh, not in the center of the Milky Way. Okay, so I was talking about, I was talking about photographic uh, plates. And here's a example of a photographic plate. This is an image, black and white, taken of Albert Einstein. And you can see that the exposure time was actually quite long because the person who was sitting next to Einstein in this chair got up and left. The person behind him is shaking his head. No, 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 no. Relativity, bunch of nonsense. Anyway, uh, the interesting thing here is that the uh, sensitivity of photographic plates to light is kind of limited and its chemistry in a gel on a applied to a piece of glass you swish it around in the right way and you reduce the uh, silver salts to silver metal and that makes the negative and all that stuff that you do turns out on, only a small fraction of the light that falls on the photographic plate uh, really does something and so in the old days, you had to keep the shutter open uh, quite a long time. Now when you use a, a digital detector in your cell phone, uh, you can take pictures in low light without a flash like this, and, and the exposures are pretty short because the, the light makes an electric signal that is much more efficiently converted to information than uh, these photographic plates. Okay, long-winded thing about photographic plates. The amazing thing is that we have now developed the method, not just to see what people looked like back then, but to see what they were thinking. And here's what Einstein was thinking about the universe. He was thinking, well, it must be static. He had been working on gravity, and he knew that gravity pulled things in, but he thought, ah, that just doesn't sound like the right answer. So I, he put in by hand, when he was thinking about this world of uh, the whole universe, he put in by hand an extra term, this cosmological term that we've been talking about, uh, that was, had the effect of a kind of anti-gravity, or as you described it, a it's a repulsive term, yes. <laughs> and here's why he did it. He said, can you read this in the back? Oh, too bad, because I was going to say I was translating from the German, but OK. Uh, <laughs> he says, that term, it's the, the Greek letter lambda, uh, that's his fraternity, uh, that is the cosmological term. He says, that term is necessary only for the purpose of making possible a quasi-static distribution of matter as required by the fact of the small velocities of the stars. So if it turns out, if you measure the velocities, I'll mention that in a minute, of the stars in the Milky Way, they're not very large. And some are coming toward us and some are going away from us. And so he thought, 
we lived in a static universe. And so he wanted to make sure that his gravity theory, which was the general theory of relativity, agreed with the facts as he knew them in 1915 or so. So here he is. Here's Einstein and de Sitter. And they're working at the blackboard. We have this photograph. And again, the most important thing, of course, is not those big hulking people with their uh, pipes, but uh, the lambda that's in there. <laughs> Unless that's just a Lagrange multiplier, I think. Uh, <laughs> anyway. All right, so how do you decide whether that's right or not? Well, the answer's got to be observations. It can't just be theoretical argument, no matter how articulate or kind of convincing to people or how loudly it is uh, pronounced. So here is the tool that really helped uh, change things, which is the 100-inch telescope at Mount Wilson. Uh, Andrew Carnegie set up an observatory. Uh, George Ellery Hale built the world's largest telescope. Well, he had built it in Wisconsin. Then he realized California, much better. Uh, <laughs> built a 60-inch telescope. That's the diameter of the mirror. The 100-inch telescope a tremendous feat of engineering at the time. And then later, the 200-inch telescope, the Palomar uh, telescope. So again, what's the most important thing in this picture? By now, you're on to me. And you know it's not the big thing in the middle. It's something else. It's this chair over here. Uh, <laughs> up here is a platform where the astronomer would sit. And here's the astronomer sitting in it. That's Edwin Hubble. Uh, sitting on that chair, <laughs> on that dangerous uh, platform. And what he's got there is a gizmo which holds a big photographic plate so that a time exposure can accumulate the signal for, I don't know, 20 minutes or something like that. Uh, and he's holding some knobs that allow you to compensate for the errors in the motion of the telescope. The Earth is turning, you know that. Uh, and so that means stars seem to rise and set. And a big telescope like the one at Mount Wilson, or any telescope, is designed to pivot at the rate that the Earth turns so that you can keep the star uh, on the photographic plate and make a picture like this one. So this is a picture of the Andromeda galaxy. It was taken on, <laughs> it's not just memory, 6th of October, 1923, so about this time of year, uh, almost 100 years ago. And Hubble was looking for novae, new stars that would pop off in the, uh, this cloud of gas, this cloud of gas and stars. And he found a, one of these new stars, and then he realized that wasn't new. He'd seen it before. It was a variable star, so he crossed out N, and he wrote for the rest of us to see in big letters, V-A-R, exclamation point. I don't think that just was a notation to himself. I think he knew this was really important, and he wants you to know about it 100 years later. Anyway, there it is, uh, VAR. And what that is, he found out, is one of these stars that Henrietta Leavitt had been working on, and that he, what he was able to do by going back night after night, week after week. He had a lot of telescope time. He could go back and he could measure the periods of these uh, stars. Then he knew whether they were intrinsically bright or intrinsically dim. It turns out, even though they were apparently dim because they're far away, they were luminous stars that appeared dim. That meant they were far away. And the distance to uh, the Andromeda galaxies on the order of 
millions of light years. So for the stars that you see with your naked eye, it's a few or a dozen or maybe a hundred or a thousand. But for the galaxies, it's a thousand times farther away, a million times dimmer. And that's why people needed telescopes to be able to get on this trail. Okay, one more thing before we get to the, well, it'll, we'll still be in the 20th century for a little while. Uh, uh, here's a kind of exciting sort of astronomy. Uh, here is a guy wearing a hat uh, who has got this kind of bent thing, which is a spectrograph. I talked about taking the light from the sun and spreading it out into a rainbow. That's a spectrograph that has prisms down there in that bendy part uh, that make one of those images, only on a photographic plate, in black and white, but that's okay, uh, to see whether the spectrum lines that I talked about that belong to the chemical elements, same as the one in the periodic table, uh, where they show up. Because uh, I didn't tell you, but it's true that if the object is moving away from you, it shifts, stretches out the spectrum to the red, and if it's moving toward you, it crunches it up uh, toward the blue end of the spectrum. It's a small effect for ordinary things uh, on the Earth because the speed of light is so big, as I was talking about a minute ago. If the speed of light was uh, a million times slower, highways would look like this. The cars coming toward you would, would look kind of blue. The cars going away from you would look kind of red. Well, in fact, they do. Uh, but it's not for that reason. It's not for that reason. We have red taillights, and you know it. OK. So uh, it turns out that uh, Slifer worked incredibly hard. That fellow I just showed you, Vesto Slifer, worked at the Lowell Observatory, which is in Arizona, and he used that spectrograph, and he took spectra of the same things that Hubble was measuring distances to. They were interested in these objects. What were they? He saw they were mostly made of stars and gas, and he could measure their velocities. And the interesting thing was he found that almost all of them were moving away from us. That's interesting. So Hubble, by 1925, he had the list that Slipher had measured. And he had distances, which were first from the variable stars and then from the properties of the galaxies themselves. And that was 1925. And I've always wondered, how come he was so slow to notice that if you took the distances and you took the velocities and you did the thing that scientists always do with, two list, with a list of two numbers, two lists of numbers, and that is make a graph. How come he didn't do that? And it turns out I'd forgotten this. I'd read this book when I was a freshman in uh, college, which is Hubble's book about you know, how I did this, uh, The Realm of the Nebulae. And in it, he explains why he did not you know, plot the distance against the redshift, the thing for which he is so famous now. Here is his excuse, uh, reason. He said, <laughs> he said it was natural inertia. Are there graduate students here? If you're kind of not making very good progress on your thesis work, natural inertia. Just <laughs> now the sort of psychological physics. A natural inertia in the face of revolutionary ideas, Einstein's ideas they turn out, couched in the unfamiliar language of general relativity, discouraged immediate investigation. 
the passive voice was used. This is the, <laughs> the school of letters and science. When I read this book, I realized I, I, I had to write a foreword for it. And I, uh, it's the, I'm the fourth person, person to do that. <laughs> the, why didn't, the first three forwards were pretty good, I thought. Anyway, uh, the, uh, I, so I really had to read it. And I noticed that every time he used the passive voice, he was talking about himself. So you'll see, it comes up again. All right, so some people are saying, what is he talking about? Here is the graph, which we call, I uh, think we can still call it that for a little while till the IAU counts the votes to see how much we have to talk about Lemaitre. Anyway, we'll come back to that. Uh, here's velocity going up this way, distance coming out that way. This is what we would call a Hubble diagram. This is what Hubble called figure one. Um, and what you can see is distance out here. This is in parsecs. Well, okay, there's like three light years in parsecs. Three, yeah, three light years in parsecs. So six million, three million light years, let's say. And velocities, those are 500 kilometers a second or 1,000 kilometers a second. So those are pretty, those are pretty good speeds. Your Tesla 3 isn't going to get up to that speed. And uh, this is, I'll show you why I would think that this is the evidence that we live in an expanding universe. But I want to just mention one thing for the people who are kind of really tuned into this, which is uh, that it's widely rumored, and probably true, that Hubble never really bought into the idea that they were measuring actual expansion velocities or the stretching out of the universe. And he thought there might still be some other reason for that. And I think the reason he was so ambivalent on that is given away in his, if not forward, it's a preface, the thing he wrote at the front of the book. This is kind of interesting. In the field of cosmology, the writer has had the privilege, the writer has had the privilege of consulting Richard Tolman and Fritz Zwicky of the California Institute of Technology. Daily contact with these men has engendered a common atmosphere in which ideas develop that cannot always be assigned to particular sources. The individual, in a sense, speaks for the group. No citations for you. <laughs> okay, so uh, I will come back to that because I'll show you that Zwicky was very uncertain in the mid-30s about whether these red shifts that I described a minute ago were really measuring velocities or something else. I'll show you the evidence for that. Anyway, here's the conventional picture. Never mind all those highfalutin scientists. If, if you're taking a freshman course from Alex Filipenko, you must interpret the Hubble diagram this way. <laughs> that the universe is expanding away from you the nearby galaxy is moving away slowly, the more distant ones more rapidly, and that's the evidence for the expanding universe. Well, okay. Uh, at Harvard, of course, this is normal. Uh, <laughs> certainly for the faculty, they all think they're the same. Well, never mind. Uh, it turns out you can make a picture where the whole universe is stretching out in all directions, and for every observer it would look like that. If I had the power, if you gave me the power, Dean Hellman, to make this room twice as big. You know, what would you see? You'd see the people who are one seat away from you would move to be two, and the people who are 10 seats away from you would end up 20 seats away if I just stretched everything out. 
you'd see everybody moving away from you, not because they don't like you, but because the whole space is stretching out. The nearby things would stretch out a little, the distant ones a lot more. So that's the picture we have. Okay, and the thing that determines how this expansion's gonna go is gravity, and uh, uh, Einstein uh, wrote down a kind of uh, theory for this, which was very helpful, uh, and which people wanted to use to understand uh, the expansion of the universe. So here's the kind of uh, um, class, uh, what do we call it, yearbook picture. Yeah, here's the yearbook picture. So Einstein is visiting 813 Santa Barbara Street, the uh, headquarters of the Carnegie Observatories, Mount Wilson Observatories. Uh, um, Campbell of Campbell Hall is next to him, right? Isn't that Campbell? I think that's Campbell, yeah. Yeah, I think that's Campbell. Well, I don't know where Hall is. Uh, he's not in here. Uh, Hubble is over there uh, on the left, and uh, you can see that George Ellery Hale, who is up there in the portrait, is patting him on the head. <laughs> Good work. I'm glad we built that telescope so you could measure the distances and connect that to the velocities and see that we're living in an expanding universe. And Einstein, who had gone to a lot of trouble to make this equation with the cosmological constant in it, for completeness, no doubt, uh, decided that, uh, well, maybe after his own observations, shown here, <laughs> after his own observations, he became convinced that uh, Hubble was onto something. I think Hubble is in every picture, okay? like, a, like a ghost coming out of the, anyway. And here's what I, uh, well, so the legend is, if you read a book, and you gotta be careful, you must read Alex's book, of course. And it, I'm sure it talks about, well, I don't know, actually. Uh, it might be, he ought to say uh, something about Einstein calling this his greatest blunder. That's what everybody says. And I was trying to, the, the cosmological constant, his greatest blunder, I tried to track down who said it first, and this is incomplete and not, possibly not the best uh, historical work ever. But George Gamow, who wrote the books that I read when I was in high school about uh, math and uh, science and cosmology too, uh, uh, wrote a, an autobiography. So who else could write his autobiography? <laughs> anyway, uh, and here's what he said. Einstein's original gravity equation was correct, and changing it was a mistake, that is, putting in the cosmological constant. Much later, when I was discussing cosmological problems with Einstein, I really wanted to put that in my book, but you know, <laughs> has, hasn't happened yet. Much later, when I was discussing cosmological problems with Einstein, he remarked that the introduction of the cosmological term was the biggest blunder he ever made in his life. But this blunder, rejected by Einstein, is still sometimes used by cosmologists even today. This is 1970, I think. Even today. And the cosmological constant denoted by the Greek letter lambda rears its ugly head again and again and again. Gamow, you can't beat it. <laughs> okay. Okay. So this is the picture now. Uh, we have a universe made of galaxies. The distances between the galaxies are millions of light years. The equations that govern the history of expansion are Einstein's equations, maybe with, maybe without the cosmological constant. With Einstein kind of giving it the curse, you probably think, well, I 
don't think I'll do that, except for completeness, of course. Uh, so, uh, and there were people who thought this might be a real physical story of the universe, of expansion from a high-density place in the past to this universe that we're seeing today. And the person who really talked about that is Georges Lemaitre. Uh, George Lemaitre, the, the controversy is uh, Lemaitre made a Hubble diagram before Hubble did. Okay, so whose diagram is it? That's the short form of it. The answer is Lemaitre was too polite after it. Uh, he says the evolution of the world, he means the whole universe. The evolution of the world can, can be compared to a display of fireworks that has just ended. Some few red wisps, ashes, and smoke Standing on a well-chilled cinder, Earth, we see the slow fading of the suns, and we try to recall the vanished brilliance of the origins of the worlds. He thought that this expansion meant there was a time when the universe was dense and small and hot. Well, we'll see. Yes, hot. Uh, that uh, uh, led to the universe that we see today. So he was really onto it. Okay. But just let me say. Uh, even after Hubble's uh, expansion law was found and after Einstein said uh, we can get along without it, uh, there were some people who thought maybe lambda had something to do with the uh, blowing up of the world. So here is uh, Professor Willem de Sitter. This is from a Dutch uh, newspaper. Uh, English is a dialect of Frisian. College of Letters. Uh, and so you, it turns out you can read this. What makes, what blows up the ball, up the ball up? What makes the universe expand or swell up? That has to be lambda. No other answer can be given. <laughs> well, okay. So at least some people were still thinking about it. And of course, I'll show you that lambda is back, rearing its ugly head, only now with data. Okay, better get moving. Uh, so here's Einstein. This is uh, it's not Einstein. It's a statue of Einstein uh, at the National Academy. And uh, he's holding a tablet. Some people say he brought it down from a mountain, but he's holding a tablet with some equations on it. Let's take a closer look. Let's take a closer look. Uh, there's an equation everybody knows. E equals mc squared, the way energy is related uh, to the conversion of mass. So if you wanted to build a nuclear weapon, there's a good equation to know. Uh, or power of the sun, come on. The uh, Nobel Prize Committee was afraid of all that stuff, and uh, they thought this middle equation here that has to do with the photoelectric effect, very good, okay. And up at the top is the equation of general relativity, kind of complicated, it's got all those mu nu things on it, and, uh, uh, but there's no lambda in it, okay? No lambda on the tablet, and I'll come back to that at the very end. All right, so, so I kept, keep saying you don't decide these things about what's the right picture of the world just by talking, by convincing people or intimidating people, as people were trying to do in the hallways at MIT. I've already got that in here, so ha, ha, ha. Uh, uh, but by evidence. So here is a, an iPhone picture taken of uh, Tycho Brahe. And you notice they're looking up. There's a new star up there in Cassiopeia. That was on my mind. Uh, and they're pointing to it. The most important thing in the picture is not the castle. It's the little dot up there, which is a new star. Turns out this is a supernova explosion, a star exploding, destroying itself. 
turning the oxygen in its core into iron and uh, emitting a bunch of light. And if you go to the same place that where Tycho saw this in 1572, if you go there tonight and you use a radio telescope and a, uh, uh, an X-ray telescope and an optical telescope, because we can, uh, and uh, uh, look at it, you can see there's this wonderful thing where the emission from the silicon and iron, which is the fluffy stuff in there, uh, which is the inner parts of that star is being blasted out into the uh, uh, space between the stars. And it's a very nearly spherical uh, kind of a thing that we're seeing. This is what we call Tycho's supernova remnant. And if you look there today, you can see that it's expanding. And if you work back, when did it uh, explode? It's the right one. These things are seen in our own Milky Way galaxy with your eyes, but you can see them in distant galaxies with uh, uh, telescopes. Alex is a great expert on finding supernovae. So here's a galaxy not too far away. That dot we know because we measured that the light from it shows the star is expanding at 10,000 kilometers a second, so it's ripping the star apart. And it glows brighter and dimmer over a period of a month or so, and then trails on for a long time because it makes radioactive elements. OK, so uh, what's the story here? Uh, you know, well, how do you use these things? And uh, it turns out Hubble was onto that, too. Uh, I had the experience of reading Great Expectations in high school. Maybe some of you also endured that. And uh, I remember reading Great Expectations letters. I was uh, reading Great Expectations and thinking Pip, the protagonist, was kind of sort of my age. Uh, which he was, because he gets older during the story. <laughs> but uh, then I had to read it again in college. And I thought, oh, I read this. Jeez, Dickens. Oh, OK. Anyway, I read it, and I thought, you know, Pip, he's kind of my age now. When you reread something, you kind of see it differently because of you know, what's happened to you. And in this case, it turns out this book, which is allegedly about galaxies, is in fact entirely about supernovae. Read this. Supernovae can be detected, can be detected. Supernovae can be detected at immense distances. And in principle, they are a criterion of distance about as reliable as that of the total luminosities of the nebulae. That's the tool he was using to figure out how far things were. And he said, gee, you know, that'd be great. Actually, however, um, actually, however, Hubble was one of the very first Rhodes Scholars. And he went to Oxford. So even though he grew up in Missouri, he spoke with an English Oxford accent and uh, said things like, actually, however. <laughs> actually, however, the maxima, the brightness of the supernova are so seldom observed, and the supernovae themselves are so rare, they contribute very little to the present problem. The problem wasn't that the supernovae weren't good. It's that you couldn't find enough of them. And so I want to show you the technology has come to our rescue. Here is uh, Bev Oak, who was my thesis advisor at Caltech. And you can see he is a happy guy, because he is holding in his hand one of the very largest silicon detectors used in astronomy, a CCD, like the things in digital cameras. This is a 0.24 megapixel device. 
and it cost a ton of money, and he's very happy to have it. <laughs> this was in the 70s. And now I'm going to turn to the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, somebody said I give away $100 million a year. It's not my money. It's money that Gordon Moore of uh, Moore's Law and one of the founders of Intel uh, set up a philanthropic foundation 15 years ago uh, with money that had to do with the technology of building chips. And here's Moore's Law, the one you're familiar with, where uh, on the horizontal axis is the year of introduction, and on the vertical axis is the number of transistors in the processor. And uh, it's pretty amazing. The vertical scale is a logarithmic scale, so you know each tick is a doubling. Uh, and the horizontal scale is a linear scale, so each tick is a tick of the clock, years. And it turns out that the doubling time is about two years. Uh, starting back in the 70s when that chip was made, and now, you know, it's up here. So over here, a few thousand uh, devices on a chip, and, uh, you know, that's what you get now, where it's billions of transistors on a chip. Now, it turns out that through the miracle of capitalism, that you can just change the axis. And... Uh, uh, <laughs> Roughly speaking, this is Gordon Moore's net worth. Uh, it went into the billions, and he decided that's enough. I, I'm not, there's nothing I need. And uh, he set up this uh, foundation. So we're in Palo Alto. Uh, we give away all the earnings on $7 billion. Well, not really. We give away 5%. On seven, but we have about $350 million a year. The things that we do are uh, environmental conservation. We do basic scientific research. That's the chunk I'm in charge of. Uh, we do patient care. It turns out that uh, Gordon and Betty, Betty was in the hospital and she got the wrong medication uh, and nearly died. And you would think normally a rich person would then sue for malpractice. No, that's not what they did. They set up uh, part of the foundation to improve the outcome of patient care, and they endowed the uh, Betty Irene Moore School of Nursing at UC Davis. So, you know, very generous people who've taken the high road uh, in life. Anyway, all right. So what's the point of this diagram? Well, okay, there's a Moore Foundation. That's part of it. And the other is that uh, detectors have gone from being very expensive and very small to very expensive and very big. So here's silicon detector now as big as a photographic plate, only it works 100 times more efficiently. It sends out the signals as electronic signals that you can process in a computer. The computers are bigger and better and faster, so you can actually do this, add pictures, subtract pictures, multiply them. So for example, you can take a picture of a piece of the sky uh, and uh, go back, take a picture of it you know, a week later, and you can subtract uh, the epic two, that's tonight. Uh, you can subtract uh, epic one, that was a couple of weeks ago from tonight, and what's left over is a dot, which is a new object, in fact, in this case, a supernova. So the technology, 
that has replaced photographic imaging has also allowed you to go straight to the computers and do this digital processing to find things. Everything else that stayed the same went away because we did a real good job on this little piece of it. And uh, uh, only the dot that changed uh, is visible. Okay, so I'll come back to that because the technology underpins being able to do this. Let me go a little faster. Okay. Uh, there's one more thing I wanted to say about Zwicky, which is, of course, there's another big component of the universe that we heard about a little bit in the introduction, which is that there's gravitating stuff that we don't see very well. It's not the stars. Turns out it's not even stuff from the periodic table. But Fritz Zwicky looked at clusters of galaxies. So here you see those big fuzzy things, and then there are a bunch of ones around. It turns out these are all in the same part of the sky. The density of galaxies much, much higher than it is uh, elsewhere. And if you go and measure the velocities of some of these, you can estimate what the mass is that uh, would bind this bunch of whizzing things together. So here's Fritz Zwicky, uh, as you've seen later. Here's his book, Morphological Astronomy. And I, you had, I had to buy a used copy, and somebody had written in it. And they underlined the most interesting things. So it turns out where Fritz was talking about that cluster of galaxies and how much mass it had and how it was so much more mass than was accounted for by the stars that there must be dark matter, stuff that was present, gravitating, but not radiating. And so he calculates, equation 82, he, he works out how much mass you'd get for this whirling around stuff. And then this, this unspeakable person who bought the, who from whom I guess I bought the book, uh, indirectly, uh, says, you know, it talks about this, it says, uh, we arrive at the conclusion that the conversion factor from luminosity to mass is of the order of 500. So there's 500 solar masses for every solar luminosity. Turns out that's sort of the number. Uh, in contradistinction to much smaller conversion factors for galactic stars, for the sun, for example, that number is one. If a star is more massive than the sun, it's less than one. So that, he scratches his head. He says, there's several alternatives to, be, to uh, explore. And he says, well, uh, maybe it's true indicators of their total, total mass. Okay, if you find an astronomer, who's an astronomer? Who considers them to? Yes. All right, look around. And talk to the what you do is you punch them in the arm, <laughs> and you say, uh, "Who discovered uh, dark matter in clusters of galaxies?" They'll tell you Fritz Zwicky, okay? Because that's explanation A. The second B, beta. The second possibility is again that the universe is non-expanding. This does not mean, however, that the clusters are necessarily stationary. The observed well—that's oh, confusing. The next one is gamma. The universal nebular redshift might be caused wholly or in part by some physical effect other than a Doppler effect. As I said at the beginning, Alex is going to mark it wrong if you say that it's caused by tired light or something like that. Fritz Wicke said, well, you know, A, B, I mean, alpha, beta, gamma, delta, the fourth assumption. Okay. It goes on. Epsilon. He's got five explanations. Looking backwards from today, we can only see one. Only thing we say, oh, it must be that he knew that the mass to light ratio was high. 
okay, that's probably the one he most believed. But the point I wanted to make was that he was still willing to entertain, this is 1957, he was still willing to, uh, willing to entertain this gamma possibility that the redshift isn't due to the motions, and you know, it's some other story. Wow. We're pretty, just to put your mind at ease, we're pretty sure now <laughs> that it really is, uh, the motions really do tell us about the gravity. We know that because we see not just the motions of the galaxies, but we also see the emission from hot gas that's in there, X-ray emission. And maybe the most uh, simple thing to understand is you can see that you know, gravity uh, has the effect, Einstein's gravity has the effect of curving the uh, space and producing these beautiful arcs that you see, these images. This is a Hubble Space Telescope picture of a cluster of galaxies. It's the big yellow things are galaxies, and these arcs are the bent light from objects behind the cluster of galaxies. So there's really mass there. And just to say, it's also present on the scale, this dark matter is also present on the scale of individual galaxies. Here's Vera Rubin measuring some of these photographic spectra that were taken in galaxies and that showed uh, one side of the galaxy coming toward you, the other side going away, sort of depicted like this. This is the way a radio astronomer would do it. Uh, and you see that the galaxy's spinning. You know how fast it's going. You can figure out what the mass is inside there, and it's really big, much more mass than in the stars. Okay. All right, that's a long preface for how are we gonna find out if the universe is accelerating? I better go quickly. All right, here is a bad haiku. Uh, here is a very fine uh, etching. And uh, the point is, the way to understand the dark matter is what you see is the snow. But the thing that's underneath it, that gives it substance, is the mountain. So in the same way, we see the stars, but the thing that's underneath that gives it substance is the dark matter. Deep snow traces rock. Always winter, never spring. Mountains do not melt. Whoa. School of letters. This, I'm, this is prose, by the way. That's a prose. Uh, why is your part of prose? All right, uh, visible matter traces the dark universe so that when you see a galaxy, what you see are the stars moving in the gravitational field of the dark stuff. Okay, why do we believe this? Because we see the kinematics. Wouldn't it be great, though, if we had a real experimental test? And it turns out Berkeley is one of the places where people are working very hard to try to make detectors that will actually detect the dark matter that's moving through this room. So the idea is we're in the galaxy. I showed you that we're out there in the outskirts. We're going around. We're going 200 kilometers a second. Uh, if the dark matter is there, it's like driving through a rainstorm. There'll be splattering going on. The dark matter does not interact as strongly as a, a drop of water with your windshield, but there ought to be a way to detect it. People here have been very clever about building uh, detectors. Here's a, a gadget, uh, uh, which is a way, a cryogenic dark matter something or other, uh, that's I think what the S stands for, uh, that is, uh, they're hoping to use to actually see the dark matter that the Earth is going through as we go around the galaxy. That would be great. You do wonder how long you're gonna have to wait for this, though. You know, the speed of light 
uh, it was 150 years from the time that astronomers knew that the speed of light was finite, as I was talking about, until you could measure it in the lab, because it's so fast on ordinary uh, scales. Dark matter, well, you might say it was 1933, when I sh this stuff that uh, Zwicky was doing. And everybody who has a dark matter experiment expects that when they open up the box, they will see the signal. Could happen next week, maybe. The people are working very hard on that. Okay. All right. So now let me come back. So now we've got the components. We've got an expanding universe with dark matter. Uh, let's get moving. We've got supernovae that allow us to measure distances and technology that allows us to find them at will. And uh, so Saul Perlmutter and his gang uh, and Alex and uh, Brian Schmidt and our gang uh, were working on this more or less separately. Uh, but we had, we had contact with one another, as shown here. Uh, Saul punches above his weight, I guess you could say. And so we measured distances and redshifts for distant supernovae. And we compared them to what you'd predict. Remember, the story is if you look nearby, you're seeing now. And if you look far away, you're seeing the past. And the light travels for billions of light years from the supernovae. Turns out the stars that we're looking at are a million times brighter than the ones that Henrietta Leavitt was working on. That means we can see them a thousand times farther away. Instead of millions of light years, we see them at billions of light years. It's really as simple as that except we have to figure out how to use the supernovae. That's a whole story in itself. OK, so here's the result. Uh, as it was back in 1998, the blue dots are ours. The red dots are Sol's. And the thing that you notice is there's some kind of a diagram up there, but uh, uh, evidence that the universe is changing its expansion in a way that's kind of interesting is out here. Uh, at large redshift, big distance, the early universe, it turns out the distances uh, that you find are bigger than you'd expect in a universe that was coasting. If it was coasting, you get this horizontal line. The points are up there, even though it's a mess and they're not very good points. We do much better now. Uh, it was evidence that we were living in a universe that was accelerating. So this cosmological constant, which had the property of making the universe accelerate, seemed like there was some evidence for that. So just to recap, uh, you could make a diagram, dark energy, how much of it, going one way, and dark matter, how much of it, going the other way. And uh, just to um, recap, if you asked a theorist in the right part of the hallway at MIT, they would say, that's my answer, that red star. And if you went over to building 37 and you talked to, or nine, I forget. Anyway, you know, MIT is very confusing, all numbers. I took a course from Professor 84. <laughs> uh, if you went to talk to the, uh, no, that was the building. Uh, if you went to talk to the observers, they'd say, well, it was here. Zero dark energy, that is no cosmological constant, and uh, low dark matter for the observers, zero dark energy, because Einstein said you mustn't do this except for completeness, and uh, 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 all dark matter. And those are both wrong. The uh, 
the contours there show you what the hint was from the early data from 1998 from both groups. And you can see the contours from the two groups are very similar. And they don't lie where those blobs do. They lie up, which means you have to have some dark energy uh, in order to uh, account for the supernova data. This was a big surprise to Einstein, because he'd been dead for so long. And, uh, <laughs> and he started walking around with sheaves of paper under his arm that have lambda on it. I don't know if you can see this revisionist stuff. You got a lambda right there. OK, so here's the elementary idea. Oh, at an elementary school. Uh, what school did you last attend? What? Sherlock? Elementary, my dear Watson. OK. Uh, <laughs> It's the girls and the boys, I think, doing a tug-of-war. But the idea is it's like the dark matter and the dark energy. The dark energy, uh, the dark matter is working to slow things down. The dark, what did I say? The dark matter is working to slow things down. The dark energy is working to speed things up. And there's a kind of tug-of-war that is reflected in the history of expansion for the universe. That's pretty bad metaphor. Okay. Uh, today the data is a lot better. Here's a paper by Dan Skolnick and others. Uh, data is way better. And you can see there's some kind of a line up there. And then here, uh, this uh, uh, shows how things are scattered about the line. It's a curved line. It's, I'll show you in a second. That is one where the university is accelerating over time, and the data's gotten way better. The constraints of the, on the uh, properties of the universe are much better. So here's that old diagram I showed you. This is uh, a fairly recent one, not even the one that I just showed you, because I couldn't figure out how to make the colors plausible. Anyway, uh, uh, we're doing a lot better. OK, so uh, here's uh, Galileo. Let's circle back. He said, all truths are easy to understand once they are discovered. The point is to discover them. So now it's your turn to show that it's easy to see. Here I show you uh, a bunch of points, which are the measurements of supernovae, distance and redshift. So like distance and velocity. And the line that's ticking through are sort of different values of what different fraction of the universe in the form of this crazy stuff, this dark energy that has this negative pressure that makes the universe expand faster over time. And you can see there, not there, not there, not there, not there, getting better, getting better, there, 0.75 or so, three quarters of the universe in dark energy. OK, the point is to discover it, not to see it later. Because if you discover it, the king of Sweden invites you to <laughs> shake hands. OK, uh, so here's our picture. This is an early time in the universe. It was hot and dense. I'm sure they had the inflation before the Big Bang. Anyway, uh, the time of expansion and slowing down due to gravity for a while. Gravity was winning. But now, as the matter thins out, the density goes down. Uh, the dark energy is bound to win. So that's our kind of picture for it. Uh, this is not the world's most uh, precise diagram. But this is a conventional thing, is to have uh, a, a pi diagram. Now, are you the dean of all sciences? Uh, no. 
Oh, no. Just physical science? What? Yes. Ah, too bad. Well, no, this will do. All right, then. Uh, so I think you should, you should look at this uh, diagram, Dean Hellman, and you'll see that atoms out of, so let's say chemistry, roughly speaking, uh, is about 4%. Uh, the dark matter, which turns out is can't be made of anything from the periodic table. It's too long a story to tell you tonight, but uh, uh, is about a quarter of the universe. And uh, so that would be, let's say, experimental physics. And the astronomy and cosmology would be 73% of the universe's <laughs> budget. Now, I told you obliquely that I work at a, a philanthropic foundation. I didn't tell you obliquely. I told you directly that I work at a philanthropic foundation, and that makes me think of money. And so uh, I've redrawn this diagram. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever spent any time looking at the back of a $1 bill. I really do not recommend it. It is the weirdest thing. There's this, there's this I. And there's some Latin phrases, and oh my goodness, it says, the Roman numerals, it says 1776. Anyway, dark energy, dark matter, but the intelligent, brilliant part of the universe, the, the eye, it's about 4% of that, uh, 4%, 4 cents on the dollar. Okay. So you might say, well, this is a crazy picture. I don't believe this. Uh, well, can you read that? I'm hoping not. <laughs> okay. Uh, it says, uh, that t-shirt, which my wife is wearing, says, uh, although the universe is un under no obligation to make sense, uh, students in pursuit of the PhD are. <laughs> and I saw, this, uh, I saw this for sale in a gift shop. And I said, I am Robert P. Kirshner. <laughs> and they said, oh, very nice. They said, we'll give you a good discount. <laughs> Okay, well, if you go on the interwebs, uh, people say, well, the scientists don't know what they're talking about, dark matter, dark energy, they're just names for things. No, we really do know what we're talking about. <laughs> Here's the metaphorical picture for the dark matter, that we see where the light is distributed, but that's not the substance. The real substance is like the mountain. And the dark energy, we also don't see it exactly, but we see the effect of it. And you're used to making arguments like that. Uh, if you look at uh, trees and outside, and they're moving, and they're moving, and somebody says to you, well, what, what causes that? You'll say, the wind. You don't see the wind. You see the effects of the wind. And we don't see the dark energy. We can't, we don't have a dark energy detector, really. That'd be a good thing. But uh, we have the idea that if we measure the expansion history, we can detect the effect of dark energy. Okay, so I showed you Einstein's statue, so I went back there and I was trying to put the lambda back in that equation when the park police came. All right, well, how long do we have to wait? I don't know, uh, till there'll be real experimental evidence on these things. For the dark matter, it could be tomorrow, or it could be we're looking in the wrong place. And uh, that's something we're looking into at the Moore Foundation. And I know people are working on it at Berkeley. Other ways to think about dark matter that might not be the ones that will be found with the detector I showed you. For the dark energy, a laboratory experiment for dark energy seems unimaginably hard. But you know, that's only now.
maybe things will get uh, better. On the astronomical side, the Moore Foundation has been helping the University of California and Caltech to participate in this incredible technological adventure of building the 30-meter telescope. And the Moore Foundation has put $200 million uh, into this project, and we sure hope that the we'll get the land use permit. <laughs> <laughs> but this is something which will help us uh, work over the whole span of the universe from nearby to look at planets around nearby stars, only a few light years away, to uh, the earliest stars and galaxies uh, forming right at the dawn of cosmic time. So this is a fantastic instrument that will help us fill in uh, this picture. Okay, well that's enough. Uh, let me just close by saying, uh, what kind of science is this? Uh, uh, when I was president of the American Astronomical Society, every once in a while I would stand shoulder to shoulder with the presidents of other societies, and we would talk to congressmen, basically, and explain to them the low road. Uh, we'd say, uh, well, you know, science is for technology, and technology is going to lead to economic growth, and we'd say it's a dangerous world, and it's important to have uh, science for defense. And a lot of congressmen are kind of old guys, and so medicine, they're big on that. So, uh, you know, there's this idea that science should do all these things in the world. And honestly, it, it does do these things uh, in the world, and those are pretty good reasons. But there's more to it than that. Uh, everybody... You came here, you didn't come here because I was going to tell you how to make uh, a large detector or something. You came here because of the ideas. And we're all interested. We want to know where we came from. We want to know where we're going. We want to know, you know where we are. So I think at least some science, a little bit, and the science that we do at the Moore Foundation is part of that story, um, no, no, you didn't want to be uh, bored. No, sorry, I forgot my punchline. <laughs> we don't want to be all those things. Uh, uh, some of the science we ought to do for the joy of finding out how the world works. Thank you very much. Thank you. Boy, you didn't get cheated, did you? I'll get you out of here. The clock is running slower. Uh. <laughs> Questions? What stopped the original inflation? Ah. Well, very interesting, because, of course, that also is a negative uh, pressure or, or, uh, you know, or an energy density that doesn't uh, decline very rapidly with time. Uh, but the, it, whether the, in this acceleration that we see now is closely related to the early phase or not, I don't think anyone really knows. Uh, and so these problems have been studied more or less uh, separately. But you're exactly right that they have the same character, that the, as the um, volume expands, the energy density does not go down. It doesn't go down very fast. And the question of how you come to an, an end of inflation is a real technical problem that people have worked on. 
Uh, and uh, whether there's some res residue that's left over that is this stuff that shows up billions of years later as the dominant uh, energy in the universe is, seems wildly improbable, but uh, I would say we really don't know. So it's not that people don't have a story about the end of inflation, but the question of whether it's connected to the late time acceleration, I think, is a completely open one. There are many theoretical models, but they all require fine tuning. When there are, you know, it's like when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, oh, I'm going to give you four pills for this. You say, because I doesn't know, that means they don't know which one works, you know. <laughs> but, you know, it's good, to have, it's good to have a variety of ideas and to let the observations or the experiments in the long run uh, determine which of those is really the right one. And that's, you know, science works that way. Yeah, it turns out that if you just take a sample of supernovae and you don't do anything, there's a factor of two range in brightness. But we are much more clever than that. It turns out that if you look at the light curve, how it gets bright and how it gets dim, that the one, just like uh, Henrietta Leavitt, the ones that decline slowly are intrinsically brighter than the ones that decline fast. And so empirically, we've been able to work that out. We've been able to do things with the colors of the supernovae and account for dust. And we have a whole elaborate way, which is what made this possible. When you do that, the scatter in the distance is about 10%. So that's a big improvement. And it means that with a sample, as you saw, a couple of hands full of uh, supernovae, you can measure an effect, which is the one due to the acceleration, which by itself is a 10% or 20% uh, effect. But if you get a bunch of things, each of which you know the distance is 10%, by the time you've got you know, a couple of hands full, you really have a pretty good idea whether the universe is uh, coasting along, slowing down, or, or speeding up. So the, the, the answer is the supernovae are pretty good, provided you, you, you filter them properly and, and use these rather elaborate uh, empirical techniques to improve the measurement. But that's what we were working on in the 90s to get to the point to be able to do this. Uh, I'm from the letter side of the house, so I don't know why my question will make sense. But once you had your graphs of, of the Big Bang and following, is that saying that the history of the cosmos is a one-directional event, that it's going to go out, further out, further out? Yes, interesting, isn't it? Uh, if this, so the idea is that, like that tug of war, it turns out as the uh, density of matter decreases, so as the universe gets bigger and lower in density, the cosmological constant, even if it's constant, will be bigger compared to the slowing down. So you will get acceleration until the expansion speed, there's no rule that says the expansion of the universe, of the space, can't be faster than the speed of light. So that means galaxies will kind of get out of your view. And as time goes by, oh, you can see he's really getting this. And as time goes by, you'll see uh, less and less of the universe until finally, it's only us and Andromeda. 
just the way it was in 1915 when people, <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. Now, and it could be worse than that. That's for uh, a cosmological constant that obeys the simplest rule for the relation between the volume and the, and the pressure. If the pressure changes more slowly than that, the expansion will be not just exponential, which this is, but worse than that. And so it means, <laughs> with people talk about the big rip, that you would uh, start to take apart things that are uh, bound uh, by other forces. That We don't know if that's correct. We don't know if that's the universe we live in or not, because we don't have precise enough measurements of how the acceleration has gone. So the next thing to do is not to just find out if there's a cosmological constant, but to see what its properties are, pressure and, and, and uh, uh, density, uh, and also whether it has changed over time, because that's a possibility too. Yeah, the view from here looks like a one-way picture, and uh, people have gotten very nervous about that. Because, you know, in a few hundred billion years, the, the view is going to be really different. There won't be any astronomy. Well, hardly any. What are the current efforts to um, define a more complex model of gravity that might explain things like, you know, dark energy? Yeah. So as many of you know, uh, there is a real problem in theoretical physics, which is that gravity stands apart from the other forces of nature, that we understand the electric force and the weak force, the weak nuclear force and the strong nuclear force is all connected to one another. You can write down a theory that has all of those. But there's no quantum theory, and those are all quantum theories. There's no quantum theory of gravity that people can agree on or that you can test. So uh, if we're going to get this right, it's got to be, that's, that's got to be where the problem is. Now, there is a big theoretical enterprise of string theory which, in which gravity does get treated like the other, the other forces. Uh, it's uh, very hard to use string theory to make actual predictions about how things will work, although this summer there was recently, or there has been, quite a big uh, discussion about a string theory model that seems to imply that you would have a changing cosmological constant. Well, if that's true, it's very interesting. At the moment, that's, uh, you know, learned people on one side saying, you know, here's what I think, and somebody else saying, oh, no, that's completely silly. Uh, in the end, you'd like to have that uh, adjudicated not by personalities, but by, uh, you know, evidence out in the real world. So we'll see. We'll see. I, I think you've put your finger on the big problem. The big problem is that physics is missing some important thing, which is how to understand gravity. The clues from uh, astronomy seem to be pointing in a really interesting direction that we have this cosmological constant. And uh, it's the, it's the um, goal of a lot of uh, theorists to try to get all of that um, together. At the moment, there are many ideas. And, you know, it's kind of, it's like having a garden. You know, it needs, it needs some weeding. But we don't know how, we don't have very good tools to do it, but we're working on it. We're going to improve the supernova tools. I'm going to give a talk in the astronomy department tomorrow about that. 
people are going to use other approaches, how galaxies cluster over time, and to use that uh, to figure out whether gravity is behaving like uh, uh, Einstein's gravity does, or whether there's some other aspect that somehow we're just blind to. I think a little humility is probably good, but you know, you gotta get up in the morning to do this stuff, it's really hard. So you can, self-doubt is not the most important thing. Zwicky taught us that. Yeah. Yeah, no, inflation theory, there's plenty. Uh, but one extremely interesting question is, is there a signature in the universe today that inflation really took place? Because it explains a lot of things that it was invented to explain. And it turns out there is an answer. Yes, the answer is yes. And the answer is in the microwave background, the glow from the hot big bang itself should have in it a trace of whether inflation really happened or not. And it's in this uh, pattern in the polarization of the cosmic microwave background, the so-called B modes. Uh, and uh, there are experiments being built, including here at uh, Berkeley, including funding from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Uh, and there are many, you know, there's many efforts around the world to do it. It's an exceedingly difficult experimental um, measurement. You may remember four or five years ago, there was a, an announcement that people had seen it. Well, they did see polarization. They did see a pattern of polarization, but it's probably due to uh, scattering by dust and not, it's not quite what they thought it was. They hadn't subtracted the foreground uh, well enough. But uh, everybody's been scalded by that, and they're not going to do that again. They're going to make some other mistake, but they're not going to do that again. And people are working very hard to, uh, to make that measurement. So I would say it's possible that in a couple of years, when these experiments have their data and it's analyzed, that we'll be cheerful that the evidence is really pointing to uh, a, an era of inflation. This incredibly, you know, 10 to the minus 35 seconds compared to now at, you know, 12 billion years, 14 billion years. It's an amazing thing if we can do that. If the signal is not found, this will not discourage people. Because they'll say, well, right? Because they'll say, well, it's a different kind of inflation. It's a different kind of inflation. No. It's getting late. Yeah. So as Bob said, uh, he'll be giving the astronomy colloquium tomorrow at 4 p.m. in the COP1. And you'll be talking about 1987 and 80. And some of this other stuff, yeah. So yeah. you are very welcome to come. Okay. Before that, let's thank Bob for a beautiful talk. Thank you.